Hello, welcome to the Heavy Hole. My name is Tom. My name is Big Will, aka Uncle. Is he going to ask about the Angel's Venom riff? Oh, I'm Justin. I don't know. It's a mysterious. It's a mysterious episode today <laughs> because who's on my roof? Pitter pattering. Yeah, yeah. No, listen. We're gonna get to who's on everyone's roof. Maybe I don't know who's on my roof, but Justin, I want to know uh, that drink that's on the roof of your mouth. Yep. As you wash it back, mm. is it gonna uh, lubricate the story of how your weekend was? Why? Well, it has. And. <laughs> Yeah, the, uh, totally fine, totally fine weekend. Uh, work, you know, uh, you got to do work. Um, you got to work on your riffs, right? Which I haven't brought up in a long time. Work it out. But I'm starting to, I'm starting to go back to some of those older episodes and hear myself say that. So I'm going to follow that advice. Okay. A little bit more. Nice. Um, yeah. Getting ready to uh, have a release. Yeah. I'm getting ready. Um, a wise yeah. person yeah, once said, "You better work." We gotta work. RuPaul. That's right. Gotta yeah. make that fucking work. Also, Tim Gunn, you gotta make it work. Um, that's about it. It's just uh, it's we're trying to be productive uh, nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's all I gotta say about it. Oh, I sold my truck uh, so I could buy this death shirt that I'm wearing. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, uh, yeah, I love that's, it. That's about it. I love. Well, nice. the, the the truck had a death bumper sticker, so technically it's like a trade. It's a trade. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a, hot, it's a trade. hot trade. Um, you get the A to B to the D to H. Yeah, that's how it is. Uh, t- Tom, you're looking you're looking well rested. Yeah. Uh, how was uh, how was your week weekend? This is gonna sound crazy, <laughs> but I forgot that I have written an entire screenplay for a movie. I totally forgot about this. Whoa! And uh, I reviewed it on, on, with your IMDb account. No, no, reviewed my uh, own work. It's not public yet. This, sound, this sounds like the movie Memento. Did you ever see that? Uh, well, I think th- uh, drinking turns me into that guy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I happen to, to wake up every day, and I have to look at the various post-it notes and scribblings that I have in my mole skin to figure out what the fuck I've been doing. So, um... Mm. Yeah, I, I had a good time reviewing the script, and it's it's crazy because it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and I asked one of my friends to read it. He said, "This is fun. We should pitch it." So uh-huh. that's something else I have going on for me. So as I it, as if I'm not writing animes and doing two podcasts and and doing mixes for. Whoa, whoa, I, I'm just a busy boy. Right you're now. writing anime. Yeah, I, haven't I told you this? We got to talk uh, later. Okay. Okay. Shout mm-hmm. out to Corey. Mm-hmm. There's a, not it, for free though. He's not weird. There's yeah, a, there's yeah. a <laughs> <laughs> like. Well, that's the thing. If you're getting into the anime fan fiction, we might have to have a little chat. <laughs> no, no, that's that I do for work. That's okay. not for fun. Well, yeah. There is a, look. There's a crossover factor in the younger generation between anime uh, and death metal. I've no. I know this to be true. So I, I try. Me. I, I try not you. to step on any um, uh, pause. Furries or whatever. There's probably furries that listen to Artificial Brain. I don't know. I know at least yeah. one out west. Uh, oh, boy. Um, but listen, uh, tonight's guest, <laughs> is, it, we have a guest expert tonight who's going to help us try to figure out what went wrong with the younger generation. No, that was mean. I love the yeah. younger kids. But Can I interject? Quickly? I would also like to tag team this interjection. Okay, so you are so excited for tonight's guest that we're not even going to ask for your week. This is just ha- researching for tonight's episode. This is My whole week. This is how your week was. I... I told my job that I got arrested, <laughs> and and I, I it's all fucked up now mm-hmm. between me and HR. But that's okay because I needed some time off yeah. uh, to listen to every single album 
by the band Monstrosity and one album by the band Terrorizer. Because tonight's guest is none other than death metal OG, uh, death metal legend, Mr. Lee Harrison of Monstrosity and Terrorizer. Hell yeah. Yes. Free will. Get get him on the uh, Angel's Venom. Get him on that. That riff is really good. Get, we're get him on the phone. Put a nickel in. Yeah, put a nickel in the the phone and rip the flyer off of it that says vocalist needed. Get his number. We're calling. Call him. Heavy Hole Podcast, this is Big Will here, as always, with Justin and Tom, and we're joined by phone tonight by our guest, Lee Harrison of Monstrosity and Terrorizer. How you doing, Lee? Doing good, real good. Uh, kind of a cool night in Florida, uh, some of the first cold nights that we've had. That's a relief, right? Yeah, it gets ridiculous in August and, like, September, July even, uh, the humidity is just off the charts, and it's annoying. I like the, I like it. I don't mind it hot, you know, but at some point with the humidity, it just gets too much. I was wondering about living in Florida. Like, are you prepared? Have you like, got jackets and stuff? <laughs> we get, we're freezing up here tonight, man. Yeah, we we have I, you know I have some long sleeves or whatever, but <laughs> for the most part, I'm inside. I'm going from one to another. I'm not just hanging out outside usually. So, right on. It's to the car to the inside you know where i'm going or especially now these days yeah yeah well i was gonna save this for later because it's kind of like my like not not so serious personal question question here but um something i've always associated monstrosity with uh you know i'm a fan you know back from when i was a teenager in the 90s obviously associating it with uh with quality death metal but uh, the sunglasses. I always remember, I believe it was from Millennium, there was like the promo picture started with every band member wearing sunglasses. Uh, was that your idea? And and Because it just made it so Florida. Like, there was this whole thing about Florida death metal, but Monstrosity was the most Florida to me because you guys all wore sunglasses. <laughs> to be honest, I don't even remember, like, if a whole, that the whole band did. I, I usually wear sunglasses in all the older promo pictures just because, you know what you do I yeah. don't know it's yeah. Florida but uh yeah I mean it, it wasn't anything we talked about it was just kind of one of those things yeah if, if you talked about it it wouldn't be as cool it might have been discussed I don't remember <laughs> but um for the most part though it's just something that you know it just I don't know it's badass something you do in Florida I guess yeah well we you know it, it, it influenced me in a big way I was thinking earlier today. I'm, I'm in a band up here in New York called, called Artificial Brain, and one of my stage things is I wear these these kind of like you know science fiction goggles or whatever, and it really dates back to me in my head, in my you know in my death metal um, obsession to like a, a monstrosity kind of influence and and the impact that the the image made along with the music years ago. But um, but that's just my thing. Getting back further though, you, we usually start off a little bit more serious than that. Um, I always ask, uh, are you from a particularly musical family? Um, are there other musicians in your family before you or people that were friendly to rock and heavy metal? 
Uh, no one friendly to rock and heavy metal. Uh, my my dad played guitar, and uh, kind of at, I would say I, it really wasn't brought up to me until after I was in music. Basically, when I was like seven years old, I got possessed by Kiss, <laughs> and uh, just kind of you know everything Kiss all of a sudden, um, and my dad's second cousin is named Davis Causey and he was in uh, a southern rock band called Sea Level and Sea Level has in its ranks a guy named Chuck Lavelle who is the Rolling Stones keyboard player for the last 25 years and he's he did this last David Gilmour uh, live at Pompeii show he was like the Roger and like Comfortably Numb for example mm -hmm. Um, wow. Anyway, he was in the album. That's great. It's great because the dog interruptions are usually on our end. It's usually one of our dogs. <laughs> so uh, he was in the Almond Brothers. Um, Chuck Lavelle was in the Almond Brothers. And then he formed Sea Level. That's great. <laughs> uh, let me take two of that. Um, <laughs> so my dad's second cousin, he was in a band called Sea Level with Chuck Lavelle, who was in the Rolling Stones uh, as the keyboard player for the last 25 years. He was also with, on the David Gilmour DVD from Pompeii, playing the Roger Waters part. Um, and he was in the Almond Brothers back in the 70s, and then he formed his own band, Sea Level. Anyway, long story longer, I ended up, when I was like nine years old, I went and saw Sea Level in Miami, where I was living at the time, and uh, got backstage and got to see what was going on, got to watch the band from the side of the stage. So that was real, like, you know, kind of influence, you know, influential as far as, like, you know, just being able to see what's going on backstage and things like that. Um, but that would be like the music in the family, you know. So my dad played guitar, and then my dad's second cousin was actually in a band and, you know, traveling and touring and putting out albums. They were on the Capricorn label, which was out of Macon, Georgia, which is like Almond Brothers area. Okay. That. So that's kind of, and then, you know, like I said, I was possessed by Kiss, so I was more into the rock, and, you know, the Gene Simmons side of things, you know. And then as time went on, I got into like uh, Cheap Trick and Bob Seger, Ted Nugent. That was kind of the thing, and then it would like graduated to like the Black Sabbaths and Iron Maidens, Judas Priest, uh, and then you know heavier and heavier as time went on. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's that's a, um, a, a usual progression, and you know we're talking about right. that, that. That's interesting that you mentioned. Uh, you know, you have some musicians in your family because I know I should shout out also the uh, the Metal Magdalene, uh, the Growl documentary, and the Heavy New York YouTube channels because we do our research and I've seen other interviews you've done uh, in the last several years, Lee. And I learned that uh, a man named Steve Rucker, who was kind of a session musician that ended up playing with the Bee Gees in the '90s. Uh, lived by you when you were young and gave you some of your first lessons? Yep, yep. Steve was uh, 
um, well, my dad was an airline pilot, and his, one of his airline pilot buddies that was also an airline pilot owned an apartment complex in uh, South Miami, uh, over by the University of Miami. And one of his tenants was this guy, Steve Rucker, and Steve Rucker was like, at the time, he was teaching at the University of Miami, and he also played with the University of Miami Jazz Band. He played on some of the, those, like, they put out some albums, and I think they went and played shows certain places. And he was kind of like when, like when bigger jazz names would come through, uh, Bob James, for his one off the top of my head, um, he would uh, he would be the you know he would sit in not sit in but he would be hired you know to play drums for that night you know and he probably you know just probably reading sheet music and just playing whatever he was supposed to play and he was just one of those guys that was just phenomenal you know and uh, so every Wednesday I would go over there and take lessons you know and uh, he was just him and he had this big Doberman named Miles and. Uh, he had a drum set in a, you know, one of the apartment rooms, and uh, I remember the first song he taught me was What a Fool Believes by the Doobie Brothers. That was like the first, like, some of the first beats or whatever he was teaching me, and then he was, we were working on a, out of a book called Stick Control. Um, so we'd do like 15 minutes of stick control, and then we'd do like 15 minutes on the drum set. It was pretty much how we would structure the lessons but yeah and then it was later on he ended up joining the Bee Gees for 10 years <laughs> that, that sounds like a good gig yeah I, right I remember in the 90s I think right. they had kind of a big comeback right yeah I know he played Wembley Stadium and I didn't even realize it until after it was kind of over with I, I just happened to look him up <laughs> again and saw that he played with the Bee Gees you know hey, okay. so I didn't even really know that until after uh, solid gig, and I, and I also understand from some of that um, the other interviews I heard you do that you're actually naturally a left-handed guitarist, but your your father wanted you to play right-handed. Right, yeah. He uh, he got me an acoustic guitar, and I was trying. You know, my natural tendency was to make it you know left-handed, and he wouldn't let me change the strings, huh. and he just kind of more or less you know wouldn't let me switch over so I was um, you know slowly but surely you know I kind of got frustrated you know but I was playing like the major chords and trying to you know just you know stick with it as, as much as I could and I pretty much got discouraged and that's when the whole thing with drums came along you know he had his buddy had that Steve Rucker guy uh, you know uh that opportunity or whatever and asked me if I wanted to take drum lessons and I was like well sure I mean, you know why not and so I tried that and that's how I got into drumming and then just having you know playing with guitar players through the years um, especially in those early days always having a right handed guitar you know I just naturally ended up sticking with the right handed guitar bit and I'm just glad that that happened you know definitely makes life a lot easier you know and same with the drums. I'm glad I never had to, like, you know, set up the drums left-handed or anything like that because I just wouldn't want to have to deal with that, you know. Yeah, inconvenience everywhere you go. Yeah, yeah you know, it's just, it's just, I don't know, it just seems to work better, definitely. And, um, you know, it's like my right, you know, my picking hand, my right hand for, you know, picking was pretty strong as, uh, for whatever reason, it's, uh, 
seems natural to do that now. So I'm glad that things worked out the way they did for sure on that. So so you now when you pick up a guitar, you, you play um, right-handed? Yeah. yeah, it feels totally foreign if I would try to play huh. left-handed. Oh, okay. And yeah. um, well, bef- I, I wasn't going to get into it this early, but we talk about you playing guitar, and just for some of maybe the more casual uh, monstrosity listeners who don't realize, you have a hand in the guitar work and the writing uh, process of monstrosity, very much so on all the albums, right? Right. When um, let's see. So when '89, I was in Malevolent Creation. I did uh, the '89 demo that just. They released it as part of the Ten Commandments reissue that they just did. Um, so when I, after I, after I was out of that band, I did a I was doing like these four track demos, basically one man band kind of thrash band uh, called Submission, and I did like I wrote like nine songs, and kind of like the first monstrosity uh, songs were kind of like. We had more or less like pulled riffs out of that tape, and so a lot of those, you know, a lot of like definitive Inquisition, like the chorus, like that was an old submission riff. Uh, Burden of Evil, there was riffs in there that were from my old submission tape. So a lot of those songs, like Imperial Doom, I wrote that with John Rubin. That was just a case of, you know, I had some riffs and I just, you know, more or less told him play this and then then double time it, you know. So like. <laughs> But like I would push them, you know, I would push push them farther than I could even play, you know what I mean? I would be like, you know, okay, here's the riff, but you got to play it double time, you know, which I couldn't do, but yeah, but that's that's good managerial skills. Yeah, right. You make it happen, dude. Good delegation. Yeah. yeah. Um. Well, okay. So before we get too, so it was like fifty. I would say it was fifty fifty out of all that stuff. You know, a lot. Um, a lot of the songwriting is about 50-50. It's usually me and another guitar player, and we brainstorm different riffs and stuff, and it's like half my riffs, half the guitar player's riffs. And it varies. Sometimes it's all mine. Sometimes it's all theirs. You know, it just depends. And I, I hope I got this right. I believe you said in an interview that it was, was it Mark English, your guitarist, is the one who's very, uh, like he picks apart riffs and breaks them down a lot of different ways before he's happy with the song? Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm right on that. I, I heard you say something like that, and the the you know I, I did hear you talk about that, and I believe he's been with the band since 2006. My question is, do you feel maybe I guess it would be on spiritual apocalypse and passage of existence um, that his contributions have caused the band to be more of a guitar driven band uh, than it was before? Well. Um... Here's what I would say, because he was actually in the band in 92. He did the European tour for Imperial. Okay. Um, and then after the tour, he left the band. And then for a while, he kind of got out of music and then uh, was doing other things. And then we, we you know, we kind of remained friends throughout the years. And we ended up doing, like, he had, like, a rock thing that we were doing. More, I wouldn't say rock, but it was kind of, like, heavy heavy rock I don't know whatever it was kind of had a little rock to it not death metal <laughs> and, just uh, called that right yeah let's put it that way and uh, I was jamming with him on that kind of on the side and then uh, Tony Norman had left the band to do the Morbid Angel gig 
and that's when he came in. So it was actually 2004. He, we did a European tour that didn't go so good, but we kind of just ended up going over there. But he was in the band for that. And uh, as far as the guitar um, being like more guitar driven, that was actually I would say on the on the second record, Millennium, because um, you know we had John Rubin, who was a great guitar player too, but. Um, the guy for the second album was Jason Morgan and he was just a phenomenal player he was just one of these guys that you know he didn't work he just sat around and played guitar all day and like he would like learn albums like on the fly he would like he just you know like for example the Dream Theater album the first one he, or the second one actually but Images and Words he just like learned that just on the fly one day just sitting around he'd learn Kiss Alive one he had like all the little nuances and all the little squeaks and just every little thing uh death individual thought patterns he would like me and him would jam some of that stuff it was just fun you know to have somebody who could you know pretty much wherever i wanted to go in my head i could you know he could be right there with me as far as what his hands could do and uh so and then like that's why we were like thinking things like Fatal Millennium, Dream Messiah, those songs kind of got carried away with the technicality uh, just because I had somebody who could actually play all that, you know, and, and we were kind of, you know, it's always been in the band to, to, to be technical and brutal. That's been like the formula. So with that one, we got a little crazier with the technical, but um, the idea was still keep it brutal but I think live when we, we did the touring for that album we realized it was a little too far <laughs> as far as like the, the odd time signatures and things like that were a little too much live they just kind of went over people's heads a little bit you know and so with the third album we kind of streamlined it a little bit and made it more not that we just totally abandoned the odd time signatures but just tried to make it a little more you know, four four, and then then like make the odd time parts a little more special. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. So, and then so once we had Jason Morgan in the band, he he played on the second record, and like I said, he's the you know he's the best guitar player I've ever I've played with. You know, he's just phenomenal, and he but he just wasn't driven to do this. You know, he he went back to Tennessee and just. Uh, he did some country bands afterwards, but he just wasn't into what you know what was going on. You know, he wasn't he didn't like Florida. He you know he really wasn't you know happy playing tech, super technical music or whatever, even though he could. Um, so he went home, and but you know I tried to keep that kind of you know since the band kind of like had notched up a few levels, I always tried to keep keep that you know intact and not you know. But at the same time, we did want to streamline it and kind of keep it more, you know, not basic, but a little more straightforward. Uh, so then we got Jay, uh, Jay Fernandez from Brutality, and he did the third record with us, and he was a killer player, too. So, we, like I said, we always try to keep that, you know, having that next level guitar player type thing. And then Mark English was, you know, he's a great player, too. So uh, it's just been consistent in that direction, you know. Yeah, always like a good um, uh, a good circle of session musicians and, and band members around Monster. It's hard to keep up with the lineup going back and doing all the um, research. But I want to I want to stop you. I was getting a little ahead of myself because 
Uh, you mentioned um, some of the older albums, Millennium, Imperial Doom, and you also mentioned Dream Theater. I understand that, on if I got it right, Imperial Doom, the kick and snare sounds are actually uh, Mike Portnoy drum samples, right? No, that, uh, what I, that, I said that in one of the interviews probably, but what it is is that they were done the same way. They were like... Okay, okay. Just, uh, because back then triggers weren't like they are now. Triggers now you put you know you put a little piece of metal on your kick drum, and you plug a cord into it, and it sends it to the uh, unit that uh, you know makes creates the trigger. Back in the day, you can um, if you care to learn more about it, it's on the Morbid Angel DVD, Tales from what, Tales from the Sick or something like that. Okay. Tom Morris from Morristown actually explains it in detail um, how he did it. But basically, like, how we triggered on those albums was that, like, the kick drum would come up, you know, the you know, it was a two-inch tape, and it would come up, the, you know, come out of the console into the unit, and then he would send it back to the, the tape head. And uh, it was kind of a technical thing, but the, the main point of that was that the dynamics weren't there, you know. what Like, with trigger units, you can kind of set them to where if you hit light, it'll trigger light. If you hit harder, it triggers harder. Um, whereas back in those days, all the, the hits were, you know, it was one hit for every, no matter if you hit soft or hard. So like, you know, like for instance, on that Dream Theater album, the song Metropolis, Mike Portnoy is doing all these little ghost notes on the snare drum and they're coming off like he's hitting it with like a sledgehammer. <laughs> Right. Okay. Yeah. So it has a it has a certain certain kind of sound to it, you know, where it's just it's one dimensional basically. The snare's yeah. one volume throughout the whole thing, and then Imperial Doom's the same way, where it's one volume pretty much. You know, anytime I hit the snare, it's that volume and that sound exactly. There's no dynamics. Whereas like uh, with Millennium, we didn't use triggers, but on uh, the third album we. We used them, but we kind of used them where, like, you know, there's dynamics. You know, if I hit the snare drum soft, it comes out on the, you know, out of the, out of the unit soft, basically. You know, if I hit it hard, it comes out hard sounding, and it just makes it more natural sounding. You know, that's how a drummer plays. You know, they play some some of the hits are soft, some of them are hard. It just it makes a more musical, you know, performance basically, and it keeps it where. You know, especially now with, you know, the way everything is with Pro Tools and all that, everybody's, you know, sound replacing the drums, and it's just, you know, it's just everybody's drums sound like these huge, you know, unreal drums, you know, sound, basically. And so you got to compete with that, you know. If you were to hear, like, a mic kit, you know, it's just, it's just not going to, like, playing super fast is, like, you know, whatever. It just—it's not going to have the same power without the triggers. You know, right? A lot of, in a lot of cases. Yeah, unfortunately. You know? So yeah, unfortunately, you got to kind of um, keep up with the times and, the, and people. And the listener has just gotten accustomed to that. The listeners are used to hearing it a certain way, and it's just um, and you, you know you can hear it on our you know the Millennium album. It just doesn't have the power that the third album has. You know, on the drums, it's like kind of. 
I won't say it's tappy because I, you know, I'm hitting the drums, but at the same time, it just doesn't have that oomph, you know. That, uh, so it was kind of one of those things where we wanted to have. We didn't like the the over triggered sound of the first album. The second album went the opposite direction with no triggers, and then that was kind of too weak. So we kind of, with the third album, kind of found the balance. And hopefully, ever since then, we've been kind of keeping that balance. You know, where it's. Uh, not like ridiculously fake sounding but at the same time it still has the power that people are used to hearing in modern production yeah um when you know when you talk about having to compete with that and, and that's what people are used to nowadays i definitely agree with you it's it's you know i'm uh, people who listen to the show and, and hear me talk normally I, i'm really a big fan of like the less triggered sound and I think there's a lot of younger generation death metal bands that are kind of rejecting that overly triggered sound. I've always said, if, if I can't tell the difference between if the band has a drummer or a drum machine within the first minute or two of the song, it's a little too much for me, you know? Right. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm one of those two. But at the same time, I'm also, you know, it, it's just, it's, I don't want to name names or whatever, but there's certain drummers out there who, who just go all natural, you know, and their drum sound's just not as good, you know, it's just back, you know, it's like, it just doesn't have the power that, you know, um, especially, you know, in the fast stuff, it's easier, like, you know, a band like Obituary, where the songs are slower, and, and you have that time to, like, just, you know, pound that shit out of the snare, it's, uh, you know, doing a natural drum sound on something like that is, you know, makes much more sense, you know. Yeah, and but, uh, while we're talking about drums, and you just brought up something that's kind of relevant to a question I had. I wasn't sure what, where I was going to bring it up, but you talk about obituary and, and being able to pound, you know, the drum. Um, just from watching some of your live videos and stuff, to, you know, in preparation for the interview, you don't you don't seem like a, a little skinny guy, Lee. And I'm just picturing, like, you've probably broken some sticks and some drums over the years, right? Well, that's the thing with, the, you know, playing fast, you kind of like one of you know one of the early things that I learned was you know of course it's easier to play slower and so when you start playing fast all of a sudden it, the you know the power disappears because you you just don't have the time to hit you know it's, it's physics you know you don't have the time to to raise your arm as high to hit the drum so what I've learned to do is make the heavier hits a little bit lighter and make the faster hits a little bit harder, you know, and kind of like compress myself basically um, to where, you know, everything try, you know, the idea is to kind of find that middle ground where everything sounds more even as I'm playing and, uh, and still keep, you know, that way because it's, there's nothing worse, you know, like, you know, you hear, puta, 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 you know what I mean? So the idea there is to kind of like, like I said, to bring the heavier hits down just a notch and bring the lighter hits up and kind of kind of play in that middle ground. And um, and actually, I, you know, I played with some cover bands I'd like these, uh, you know, this side work. And we'll play these small places, you know, just, you know, nobody in the crowd even cares that there's a band playing. They're like, you know, just it's like, you know, bar band shit. And you can't you can't just go in there and bash the drums, you know what I mean? Yeah. It just it, it's it's annoying. You know, you lose your gig doing that. 
so I've learned to kind of dial back my drumming to like to just be more of a you know dynamic drummer in that respect and it was actually good training for me you know doing that and being able to you know just control the hits a little more and you know use uh whatever it calls for if it's a heavy part you know what i mean where it needs to be super loud okay you know you can bash up a little bit more but if it's a controlled part and it's whatever whatever the music calls for you know i kind of do that with the cymbal catches and things like that like if the guitar stops i catch the cymbal you know if the guitar like holds out the note i let the cymbal crash things like that so i kind of do whatever the music calls for uh, on on that note um getting back to your i guess you know you more lear learning drums when you were younger um you know, I know there's a lot of southern rock and country influence there, um, just from location and, and some of the musicians you talked about and your family and things. What? Um, but you also mentioned Bob James coming through, uh, who was I, I think he did the Taxi theme and a lot and a lot of music that's sampled for hip hop nowadays and stuff. People might people have probably heard a lot of his work and don't even realize it. Were you big into jazz or progressive music at any point? Um, where I got into more off-time stuff was the Metallicas and, and things like that, you know. Um, so I really, um, I mean, yes, the band, yes, Genesis, some of that stuff, you know. Bill, Bill Buford, right? Yes. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, so, but no, not, not as much as I should have been probably, you know. Well, I, I ask because I your, your, your style seems to reflect some of that. Maybe it's, there's just a lot of musicianship and precision in monstrosity. I thought maybe that might have been a factor. I think it comes from Steve Rucker, you know, just working with that stick control book and, like, learning the, you know, paradiddles, double paradiddles, and, like, mixing, mixing and matching things and, uh, you know, pushing it from that, you know, that aspect, I guess. Uh, and and I, I also understand, well, you learned a lot from Steve Rucker, obviously, um, but if I got it right, you first developed uh, and learned how to do a blast beat when you were playing with Hellwitch very early on, right? Yeah, that was uh, 88. Um, I, I was hanging out around Cynic, because mm -hmm. they were like one of the first, you know, uh, some of the first guys in like I, I lived in Miami and then I moved away and then I came back to Miami when I was 18 and I uh, was hanging around the band Cynic and obviously they didn't need a drummer but uh, so I was kind of since they were together and already doing things I was hanging around them and I met Mark Banner who was the original bassist for Monstrosity and uh, he was in Cynic at the time and so we were hanging out with those guys um what was the question again? I'm sorry, I got a little uh, No, it, it's it's okay. I just wanted to know about your experience playing with Hellwitch, because uh, I heard okay, you saying Hellwitch, right? Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I, um. I, yeah. So, so from then, uh, so I was looking for a band. I was hanging out with Cynic, but I was looking for a band, and they knew Pat, but I didn't know Pat. Um. So, I think he had ads out, you know, that he was looking for a drummer. So, and at the time, it was Pat and Frank Watkins from obituary later but at the time it was just Pat and Frank and uh, 
I was in Miami at the time, and they, those guys were in Boca Raton, which was like hmm. an hour and a half, two hours almost north. And so, like, just made practice, you know, kind of, of a strong. I had a van, so I was able to drive up there, but it just made it kind of an inconvenience to drive so far. And uh, but I tried it for like two or three weeks, I would say, maybe a month. And uh, yeah, he was the, he was talking about the super fast beat, is what he called it, you know. And he was he was real. Uh, you know, he was a big Morbid Angel guy at the time. You know, and that was like, I would say, uh, the demo, early demos, you know. And he wanted me to, he wanted me to play the super fast beat. And at the time, I didn't really get it. You know, I was like, yeah, cool. But, you know, why? Like, I don't know. It just didn't make sense yet. And then, you know, as time went on after playing it for a while and, you know, as the scene grew and just whatever, it made more sense. Um, but yeah, he was the one who introduced me to the, the super fast beat. <laughs> and, and you stayed with Hellwitch for about a year, I think, right? No, just like two two weeks to a month, I would say. Oh, okay. Maybe it was Malevolent Creation that was about a year? Yeah. Okay. Malevolent was about a year, yeah. Okay. Um, before we get to, I mean, you, you talk about um, Miami. Uh, you know, something I, I kind of go off on a little tangent, but it's something I've been asking some of our more old school um, death metal scene guests lately is uh, maybe you could just talk a little bit about what life was like um, just, you know, on the streets going to shows in South Miami back in those days in the 80s, because we often talk about how times have changed with uh, surveillance cameras in these venues and bars, uh, social media and camera phones everywhere. And I feel like drugs and maybe fighting and violence were a little bit more free back in the day. I don't know if you want to agree or disagree with that. Um, well, back then we used to have to do flyers. You know, everything was on fly. You know, passing out flyers, and that was how you promoted. You, there was no social media, obviously, mm -hmm. and uh, we would uh, like I was helping Cynic back in those days, and we would just get like a stack of flyers from the club. And we would just gas up my van and we would just drive all over Miami passing out flyers everywhere. And that was like, you know, we were pretty relentless about it. And it was like, it, it got to a point where like the record stores wouldn't allow you to put flyers up and like the radio stations wouldn't allow you to promote their sh promote your shows on the radio. But this was kind of before that. So like, what, why? we were just going nuts with it. Why did they have an issue with that? Uh, they wanted it... Uh, it's kind of the same thing. It's solicited versus unsolicited. Basically, they want to promote people that are paying, you know, to do advertising. Yeah, yeah. They, know, everybody gets a cut. It it became more of a corporate thing, you know, with, like as far as uh, and then as far as the the record stores. I don't know. It just seemed like that they didn't want you know everybody and their brother was coming in and they you know had all these stacks of flyers everywhere and they're cluttering up the room but uh back then they didn't care you know and they actually encouraged it so and uh we just went nuts with it driving all over miami passing out flyers and promoting every which way you know going doing like local nights on the you know the radio station or whatever and get trying to get your demo played on some sunday night metal show 
and because uh, kind of we're talking uh, um, late '80s. I mean, back back then, thrash metal uh, and thrash metal evolving into death metal, if I could say that, um, was everywhere, right? It was a huge thing, especially in Florida, right? That's the thing. It was always like, you know, at, at the time, it was just what was accepted by the mainstream just wasn't what became, you know. It was like like the Super Fast Beat, for in, instance, just wasn't on the, you know, Slayer was fast, basically, you know. That was like extreme. Whereas now, you know, later on, bands, you know, went way beyond Slayer, you know, as far as speed and technicality and brutality and trying to be, you know, the image being extreme, you know, the black metal, all that stuff, you know. So it was like always kind of like going somewhere still, you know, when like, or at least for us, you know, we were always looking for the next heaviest thing. Mm -hmm. And especially during that time, 88, 89, 90, you know, it was like we were definitely looking, you know, to make things more heavy, you know, at all costs, basically. Yeah, well, on the, it just seemed like there was always there was always a new band coming out that was heavier than the last band you heard, you know. Yeah, I've heard it described as kind of like an arms race between bands who could get faster, who could get more brutal. Right, for sure. Um, well, you know, we should also mention uh, just again, like I said, for maybe the more casual listener or people who don't realize, you also have been playing guitar for Terrorizer uh, for several years and are on their 2018 album Caustic Attack on, uh, on the end records. Um, maybe just for starters, because you're talking about the old school days, we talked about drums. Could you take us through the first time you meet or see Pete Sandoval? Uh, maybe, I don't know if you were introduced to him as a friend or you witness him play drums first. Okay, well, Pat from Hellwich was, you know, he had, a, he had was talking about him like we, we actually drove up Phil from Malevolent, Pat from Elwich, the, uh, Paul and Sean from Cynic, me, and like two other guys. We all drove from Fort Lauderdale or uh, Miami. We drove up in my van and we saw Death and Morbid Angel play at the Sunset Club in Tampa. Mm. And Pat was big on Morbid Angel at the time. Uh, we, we knew who Death was, so we were kind of bigger on Death at the moment. Um, and it just uh, basically, you know, seeing seeing Pete really didn't even that didn't even click then. You know, when I the first time I saw Pete, it was like, yeah, cool. You know, but uh, I would say uh, right where he had already recorded Altars of Madness, but uh, they were playing this warehouse party out on uh, out by the Air Force Base. And it was like this out, outdoor kind of huge shed um, hanger. It was like a hanger. And uh, um, it was probably, you know, 15, 20 feet in the air was the stage. And we drove up from Miami for that one. And uh, I remember that was like, a, I remember watching Morbid Angel sound check for that. And... Uh, that was the first time I really remember paying attention to Pete and being like, wow, this, you know, this guy's killer. And then, uh, let me see, not long after that, they played that Sunset Club again, and that was when I actually met Pete and was taught, me and Phil talked to him. 
and uh, that was when I first met him. And then from then on, we pretty much every time we'd come to Tampa, we would see him. Some, you know, he's either at the, you know, if it was Death playing, he was there at the show hanging out. Or if Morbid Angel was playing, we'd see him there, you know. So I was seeing him everywhere, you know, anytime I came to Tampa. And then uh, we brought, when I was in Malevolent, we actually brought Morbid Angel down to Fort Lauderdale to play and uh, arranged it. We played this place called the Treehouse. And uh, Phil and I, we knew the sound guy and the, the, the booking agent guy or booking guy for Treehouse. And we, you know, we had brought obituary down already, and that went great. You know, they made they had a killer night. You know, the club was real happy about that. So we're pretty much listening to whatever we said. You know, hey, bring these guys down, and they would do it, and you know, they'd have a killer show. And so we brought Morbid Angel down, and I got to know Pete. You know, he saw me play for the first time that night, and then. Uh, so I would see him from time to time, and then uh, I ended up, uh, Keith gave me his phone number, and this was kind of after Alters was already out and going, but it was before Blessed of the Sick was recorded, and uh, I ended up driving up to um, Ace's Records, which was like a, at the time it wasn't like a standalone store, it was like at a uh, at a flea market and only open on the weekend so I drove up like on a Saturday or Sunday went to the Aces record bought some you know vinyl bought, bought some CDs or whatever and I called Pete and I was like hey man what are you doing he's like oh I'm just chilling out and he said come over so I went over and uh, more or less you know hung out with Trey and Pete and you know Trey talked Pete into you know rehearsing because he had he had just gotten out of the shower and he was all like, he had leathered like a, he had his, uh, like a, this, uh, what do you call it? trench coat, this leather trench coat. And he had this hat. He was getting ready to go out somewhere. And I remember Trey talking to me. He's like, come on, man, let's jam, you know, jam for Lee, you know. And so they ended up, you know, he went and go put his shorts back on and, you know, and they ended up playing a bunch of the Blessed songs that they were working on. And so that you know, just hanging out at the, the old Morbid Angel house, and uh, that was like one of the early times that I hung out with Pete, you know. And then from then on, I mean, it, it, it just got to be more like, uh, you know, I would just see him everywhere, you know, every pretty much every Tampa show he would go to, as even as a, you know, just hanging out. So I'd see him all over the place, and then. Uh, Mark English, who wasn't in the band at the time, but we were still friends. Like, you know, we've always been friends throughout all these years. He had Richard Brunel living at his house. Okay. So I was here, and, and it was right at the time Richard was out of Morbid Angel. And so I was I would hear, like, some of the Morbid drama or whatever going on through Richard <laughs> and uh, through Mark English or whatnot. And, I, you know, like, around the Covenant period, um, like... We had, you know, we ended up hanging out a lot during that time too, and uh, then I would say, like, you know, after you know ninety four, ninety five to like two thousand three, two thousand four, I didn't really. I would see him here and there, but not as much, you know. Um, 
just because I was doing my thing and he was doing his thing. And then, uh, then he kind of disappeared for a while because he went to Spain. And uh, I really didn't hear from him throughout those that time period. And then when he got back from Spain, he had, uh, he had gone through his back surgery and he had uh, found religion. And uh, so he was a lot more clear-headed. He wasn't partying. He was real straight-headed. And it was like, wow, you know, it's doing good, you know. It was like, but at the same time, he was already out of Morbid Angel and he wasn't doing anything musically. So I just pretty much said, hey, man, you know. And I, I had learned the Terrorizer album on guitar like in 94, just kind of just playing guitar on my own for fun. And like, I would jam the songs with Tony Loreno. I don't know if you know who he is, but. Um, I'm not familiar. He, he played on, uh, he was with Nile. Uh, he was, he's. Uh, with Malevolent for in and out of Malevolent a couple times. Okay, I probably heard um, some of his music then. Not yeah, yeah. Uh, Angel Corpse played with them for a little bit. Okay, um, all right. And uh, now he's the Megadeth drum tech. So Sounds like a good gig. Uh, yeah, he's been doing that for a long time now. I mean, traditionally but, with Megadeth, anyway, so, that means you're a member of Megadeth eventually, like traditionally, right? Don't all the techs eventually join? <laughs> Yeah, he actually played a couple shows like China and some other shows with him before the Lamb of God guy came in. Yeah, yeah. He filled in with Demo. He was kind of, he's kind of like a go-to guy. You know, people call me the drummer, they call Tony Loreno. But anyway, at the time, he was, you know, not, he didn't have a gig and he would come over here and we would just jam. And so, like, we would jam some of those Terrorizer songs just for fun. And so, I, so like I said, I already knew the album, like, from years ago. It was like one of those cases where I'd learned it, but really hadn't played it in a long time. But I still, you know, it was still in there somewhere. So when when Pete was, you know, pretty much back in town with no gig, and I knew he had still, he still had the house, you know, where he's been for a long time, and he's got a jam room back there. So I said, hey man, you know, let me come over and let's jam some of these songs, man. Let's see what's going on here. And that's what we did, you know. He. Uh, started with like I don't know five or six of the songs terrorizer songs and uh, then we said hey man what are you doing next Wednesday we'll do it again and then so I came back the next Wednesday and we, you know I picked up a few more songs and jammed those and kind of just stuck you know for the first month or two it was just Wednesdays we would get together and uh, and pretty soon we had the whole world downfall album and you know it was kind of like well gee he had the band out in L.A., you know, the, the one that did Hordes of Zombies. Yeah, it was a singer and his wife, basically. Yeah. And uh, they were sort of working on a new record, and there was like his, his plan kind of was that he was going to go out there and do an album eventually. But um, he, I don't think he was, you know, he was going to have to stay in a warehouse, and he didn't have transportation out there, and it was, was kind of inconvenient for him. So he really wasn't looking forward to doing all that. And he had a band, you know, basically I, I called Sam Molina, who I had been in Monstrosity at one point. And uh, I knew Sam. He would be kind of the, you know, I knew he would be perfect for the job. And uh, I had, I'd run into him at the Ingve show. <laughs> and uh, I told him what I was doing, you know, Jan with Peter. I said, hey, man, you know, I'll try to get you in there if you want, you know. And he's like, sure, you know. 
so I talked to Pete about him, and uh, you know, it just made sense. And so he came up, and like I would say, uh, like end of July, early August of 2013, we were uh, we were working salmon, and then we had an idea to do a backyard party as kind of like the first show or first thing to do, you know, just some for fun to try it out and see what, you know, see how it went. And that was, that ended up being our first quote unquote show. And, uh, that's kind of how it started. Yeah. And, and, uh, uh, like I mentioned, uh, just for the listeners, uh, caustic attack is the name of the album that came out in 2018 on the end records. And, uh, you know, you were talking about some old school stuff back in the day, early Morbid Angel, um, when I asked you about meeting Pete. Something else I wanted to ask you about, um, because there's there's like uh, 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 kind of a, a cool story, I think, there, is I think the first time you met um, former Monstrosity vocalist and current Cannibal Corpse vocalist George Fisher was when you drove up to Baltimore and saw Ripping Corpse. Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I actually flew to I flew into Washington D.C. and uh, this guy Ted Hartz picked me up. He was a guitar player. That, he was in a band called Ex Mortis, and Ex Mortis needed a drummer, or they were talking about replacing their drummer. But in the meantime, Ted Hartz got kicked out of Ex Mortis, so now he was kind of like talking about putting together a new band. And I already had my plane ticket set, so I just went ahead and flew up there. Ted picked me up, and then he drove. we drove up to Baltimore together, and we picked up George. And then from there, me, George, and Ted, we drove up to Philly, and we stayed at this uh, friend of ours, Ann. She had kind of like a crash pad, party house type thing. And uh, I ended up meeting Alex, who's in Immolation now. He was in a band called Gorephobia at the time. Wow. Uh, we met him, and then that weekend, that that night, it was uh, Ripping Corpse, Malevolent, and Hellwitch at a place called G. Willikers, and Immolation, no, it wasn't that night, Immolation was supposed to come, but I don't think they came, or they might, I can't remember, I don't think I met them though that night, um, but that was the show, I remember, you know, meeting the Ripping Corpse guys, and uh, it was just kind of, you know, South meets north, you know, if you will. And uh, then, the, like, there was a day in between, and we hung out in Philly. And then the Sunday, I think it was, uh, it was like a house party somewhere in Philly. And it was uh, Biohazard, Faith, Faith or Fear, and Hell Witch, and some other bands. And that was when the immolation came out. We met those guys. Um, a guy, Lord from Paradrop Fanzine, Listenable Records, guy from France. He ended up was hanging with it, with immolation, and I met him that night. We ended up, you know, tape trading and sending letters back and forth for years. And I see him every once in a while when we go to France. You know, so we met. You know, it was kind of like a meeting, like a set of South versus North. You know, and so. Basically, it was going to be me, Ted, and George originally doing Monstrosity uh, before it was named Monstrosity. We were going to do a band. And uh, more or less, uh, in the meantime, like Mark Van Earp, the original bass player for Monstrosity, who I told you was in Cynic, 
Well, when I left Malevolent Creation, he joined Malevolent Creation on bass. And so he was in Malevolent when I, when we went up there to see Ripping Corpse and Malevolent. But right after that, he got kicked out of the band. And so he called me and he was like, hey man, Phil kicked me out, you know. And me and him were so, you know, we were pretty tight. And, you know, pretty much immediately I packed my van up and went down to Fort Lauderdale to where he, he was living and he had a house. And that's when we started Monstrosity. And we didn't, we, I had the idea, you know, we'll get this Corpse Grinder guy, you know, this guy from, he's in a band called Corpse Grinder. He's pretty badass, you know. <laughs> um, I really hadn't heard him sing, like, with a band, but I like just hearing him in the car, like on the way up, driving up, you know, he was singing along with various, you know, whatever, Death Album or whatever, and I could hear that he could do it, you know, so like I knew he was good, or, you know, I knew it was worth a shot anyway, and uh, so once once I had moved to Fort Lauderdale and started jamming with Mark Van Earth, uh, we wrote like three or four songs, and this guy in West Palm Beach named Ross, um, he was a good friend of ours and, and he said you know anytime you guys want to do a show man let me know let me know so and he called us he's like dude I got this massacre show uh, you guys want to open up you know we didn't even have the full band yet you know and I was like sure yeah let's do it <laughs> so then I got on the phone with George and I was like hey man we got this show with massacre man you want to come down and do it and he's like yeah for sure definitely and I called Ted and he was like, he was kind of upset that we like, you know, he wanted it basically for us to throw out everything that we had already written, start over with his, like his songs, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it just got to be kind of where we weren't, we weren't really interested in that. We'd already made some progress and we wanted to continue on with that, you know? So he didn't end up coming and joining the band. Um, he did try later on, but it didn't work out then either. Um, he just was too, he wanted to be in control too much and it's just, we weren't going to do, we would just weren't going that direction. So, and by that time we already had the Horror Infinity demo done with George and we had already moved on from that. And, uh, at the time, you know, um, when the band was forming, um, Malevolent, like I had sent in the video to Road Racers, to Roadrunner Records. And they were like, yeah, we, you know, they could see, you know, from the video that we were doing good as far as like having a crowd and things like that, you know, good reception. And they, you know, they liked the music. And then they were like, well, you know, you guys, you know, go back to more sound, do another demo and let's hear what, you know, let's hear your new up to date. Because like the style, of the demo that, that I played on was kind of a little more thrash and we were moving in more of a death metal direction. So like by the time we were talking to Roadrunner, we had already kind of moved in the death metal direction and we wanted them to hear that before we got our deal just to, you know, just so they would know for sure that we, you know, we meant business. So right when we were getting the record deal for Roadrunner with Malevolent was when things fell apart for me and Mark Vanner and malevolent you know so they ended up going on and doing ten commandments and uh and all that but we were still talking to Borgoy who does blabbermouth we were talking to monty connor they were like you know we would do three-way calls with banner mark banner me and uh 
Monty and Boy, and you know, he'd be we'd just be gossip, more or less gossip queens about what's going on in the scene. This guy's doing that, Chuck's doing this, James Murphy's doing that, you know, whatever. It was just kind of whatever the the daily you know drama was basically we would chat with them and like you know well as soon as you get your demo man send it up here so that's what we did and uh we got the horror infinity demo recorded and we sent it up to Borboy and monty and uh with the idea of hopefully getting signed to roadrunner 2 and uh by that time they'd signed immolation they'd signed suffocation they'd signed gore guts they'd signed uh you know they already had sepultura malevolent Aside, yeah, you know, so they already had like 10, 10 death metal bands, so it was like one more just they felt was a little, you know, at the time it was just kind of overkill, so they didn't want to take it. And uh, even though they loved it, and you know, Boy Boy promoted us, put us in Metal Maniacs magazine, and like got us impressed, you know, and they definitely, you know, I know they, they liked the demo, um, because they told us as much, um. And they would play it for people and send, you know, I know they were, you know, talking about us and whatnot, but basically uh, they ended up talking to the guys at Nuclear Blast for us and, and kind of arranging that where we ended up signing with Nuclear Blast. And at the time, Nuclear Blast wasn't the Nuclear Blast that they are today. They were just like kind of a smaller punk label. And they had a, they had just started putting out like Dismember and Righteous Pigs and some of that stuff. So... They had some stuff that was coming out, but it was all in Europe only. They didn't have American distribution. And we were just, you know, at the time, we were just going crazy with the mail. We would, like, you know, just sit there and dub, like, you know, uh, probably 100 Horror Infinity demos. And every day we'd go be going to the post office with, like, a like a brown paper bag, like this big grocery bag full of mail. And we, you know, we were chucking out all kinds of money trying to get this you know, get the demo sent out to every every little fanzine. And Pat from Hellwitch, like, he gave us, you know, all these addresses and stuff, and we we just went nuts with it, just sending it everywhere we could. Greece, you know, uh, all over Europe, all over, all the U.S. fanzines, Chris Forbes, and all these, you know, just anywhere we could, you know. And so that kind of built up the whole underground network, and, and Relapse contacted us about doing a 7-inch, and then in the end, it turned out that Relapse became Nuclear Blast America. So that's kind of how, like, it kind of worked out with that, was as far as new, we, you know, signed with Nuclear Blast, but then Relapse would be our American label for the first album. And that's kind of the whole early story, you know, in a nutshell. Yeah, uh, yeah and, and while while you go there, you did mention suffocation a while ago. Um, and I, I always refer to that period of time as like the great death metal gold rush of the early 90s. There were so, so many bands. Um, but we ask, we, we allow some of our listeners on our Patreon to, to ask some questions. And one question's relevant to what you were just saying. Our listener, Adam Moore, says, uh, First off, thanks to Lee for keeping Monstrosity, one of the best Florida death metal bands of all time, going strong for all these years. Uh, my question is this. How did Lee come to write the lyrics for the suffocation track Torn into Enthrallment from the album Pierced from Within? Alright. Well, going back to our I'll just give you the whole suffocation summary. Um, yeah, we're from Long Island. We want to we, hear it. You know, 
right. Uh, we had. Just, I remember we were talking to Josh, the bass player, the original bass player from Suffocation, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a case of we had gotten a demo. Like that time I went up to, to uh, Philly with George, we had gotten the first Suffocation demo, yeah, or maybe it was the second one, or whatever. It was. It was one of them. I don't remember which one. Um, and so we ended up, we knew who they were. We, you know, we were aware of them. And uh, the, through the, those talks with Monty and Borboy, they were talking about suffocation, you know. And so we ended up calling them and we were, we were calling back and forth and sending, you know, we sent them our tape and they sent us their latest, like a rehearsal. Like I, they sent a bunch of rehearsals at the time. And we were talking with Josh and, you know, they were keeping us, you know, up with their news and oh we just got signed to Roadrunner and cool cool and then it just worked out when we were doing our first album uh, they we had already done the drum tracks and bass tracks but we'd come back to do uh, the guitars or something and Suffocation was recording their first album they were doing drums for the first album and uh, it worked out where you know we we brought in uh, Frank Mullen to he did a couple background vocals on Imperial Doom and then George ended up doing a, a part like a line or two on their album I think it's Reincremated or something Reincremation um, yep yeah and uh, so that was kind of like the first suffocation and th- there's actually a, um, you know we were hanging out with him at the at the hotel and stuff and um they they stuck around like they they mix they took like two weeks to mix that album I remember that huh. and at the time they were they were getting rid of Josh and Josh was talking to us about joining Monstrosity wow <laughs> yeah but that just never happened and uh, um but we became good friends from that you know so then later on when uh, I would say what was it ninety three I would probably probably ninety three or it came out in 94, so my guess is that it was around 93 when they recorded it, but it might have been 94. I, I just don't remember the timeline exactly, but they were in town doing uh, Pierce from Within, and they were still working on the lyrics, you know, as, you know, they were getting down to the wire where everything was getting recorded, but they didn't have the lyrics totally finished yet. And... Uh, I'm sitting there, you know, chopping at the bed because that's what I do. I write the lyrics too, you know. I wrote all of Imperial Doom's lyrics and I wrote nine out of ten songs on the Millennium. Um, I didn't write any on the our Monstrosity's third record, but then ever since then, I've pretty much written all the lyrics. And uh, so at the time, I remember, you know, they're sitting there, you know, in a stump, you know, like. They've already kind of, you know, not that they're stuck totally, but, you know, it's something they're working on and they're like, hmm, you know, what are we And I'm just sitting there chomping at the bit to, you know, write lyrics and stuff. And Scott Burns was just like, hey, man, you know, uh, if you want to help out, man, well, you know, we'd appreciate it. And uh, so, I, so I did, you know, and uh, I actually wrote two songs, but I only got credit for the one. Um, but it doesn't matter. I don't care. Uh, What's the other one you wrote? <laughs> yeah, let us know. You know, I don't know the title, but if, if I saw the lyrics, I could tell you which ones they were. I just don't remember the title. Oh, it was, right. I think it's the song right after that one. 
All right. Okay. That, that, that's interesting, man. Um, the 90s sharing of the Google Doc. You, you make you make me think of something though, because you say that Josh from Suffocation was uh, discussing possibly joining Monstrosity. Um, it seemed like very casual the way you talked about George Fisher moving down there from Baltimore. I mean, we always hear about how in the early '90s, late '80s, people were moving down to Florida to join metal bands like crazy. Was it really like that? That people were just arriving from all over the country to play death metal in Florida? At the time, it was, yeah, because it was just, it was kind of like like what happens with all these kind of scenes, like the Seattle thing, where it's like hot, real hot, and then it goes, you know, later on, it became almost like a negative, you know what I mean? Um, just as, as things get saturated, you know, like anything, everybody, you know, wears it out. And uh, so at the time, yeah, people would like that Ted Hart guy, he was you know, coming down to see Morbid Angel, and like that's where I met him originally. And um, he, had, you know, there was other people that were, you know, moving from other places. Uh, you know, uh, I know Richie Christie moved from like Kentucky or somewhere, you know, and, like or somewhere out there, and like moved to Florida. And there was just there was a lot of you know, there was bands from Michigan. This band called Frigid Bitch. I remember they came down from Michigan. Good name. Uh, from Mich- hung out. That's a good name for Michigan, but once you move to Florida, the name doesn't make as much sense. Well, you can bring your frigid right. bitch with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or you start the band Hot Bitch. Yes. <laughs> like that. That's sharp. Um, so we got one more Patreon question that I feel, because we do, as we always say, we want to be respectful of your time, Lee. And before we wrap it up, I got one more Patreon question that I feel like kind of is a, it, it sums up a little bit um, the the uh, monstrosity uh, discography because something I've always told people is monstrosity is a death metal listeners or a death metal musicians death metal band, um, and maybe you know we talk about uh, things not working out with Roadrunner back in the day, but they still loved it and wanted to push it. I think that's like. You know, um, Monstrosity uh, may not enjoy the notoriety of some bands, um, but it always enjoys the integrity uh, of the list. You know, the respect for the integrity of the listeners. And our listener Phil Wadey has a question that I think kind of sums that up. It says, "Having been active for near nearly thirty years and having had a few lineup change, having had a few lineup changes, how has Lee kept the sound of Monstrosity so consistent and recognizable?" All six albums are of equally great quality, and within a minute of each, you can tell it's monstrosity. Well, uh, I'm, I, you know, I'm the one who's been on every album, um, and like you know, like you said, I play guitar. I'm writing, you know, half the music. Um, my drumming's on all, you know, all the albums, so that there's a consistency there. And it's just one of those things where I just try to keep, you know, I have a certain standard and I try to keep it up to that standard um, no matter what, you know. So it's not easy, I can tell you that. (laughs) Quality over quantity, right? Yeah, the quality thing is, you know, because that's why sometimes it takes four, you know, four years between an album or 11 years in one case, you know, it's like... um, because the you know certain you know certain bands they have label support you know from day one and they can go you know they they can go right in and they don't have to worry about budgets and things like that you know whereas we've had to you know 
we got to line up the budget. We got to, you know, make sure that we have everything with the studio. Okay, we lost the guitar player. Now we got to replace it. Things like that, you know. So it's, you know, it's when it's like when the money's coming in, it's easier to keep a lineup, you know, and, and things like that. You know, finally at this point, we've, I'd say in the last, you know, 10, 15 years, we've finally started to make a little money. It's been better. But in those early days, we just weren't making money. And uh, we, in fact, were paying out to do it. You know, a lot of a lot of those early tours we basically did for free, you know, just because even though we were getting paid, it was just, it was all going to the cost, you know. The, and like all the albums, you know, it's all those it all went to the studio, you know, the recording budget, you know, we never made any money off doing the albums and, uh, any money that we were, that came from, came from the recording of the albums went back to pay the budget, you know, cause we, you know, we, that was one of the things too, is that we spent a lot on the recordings, you know, um, so to make them that good, you know, you have to spend a little money. It was just a case of, uh, we end up spending, you know, all the money that was made from the albums go over to pay back that recording cost, you know. And, um, finally, you know, like I said, in the last 10 years, we've been doing a lot better as far as uh, getting better guarantees for live shows and and just making a little more money. And being more... Another thing was just the merchandise, you know. Back in the 90s, we would show up with one T-shirt design, you know. Yeah. We were lucky to have that almost, you know. Once we realized, gee, you know, maybe it's better, good idea to have several designs, and you know, it became like having a Walmart traveling, you know, where you got four designs and you got CDs and you got, you know, this and that. It made it a little more lucrative, you know. Yeah, that's. I mean, at least before coronavirus, that's kind of the way bands do things nowadays. Right. Um, you just take, you know, you got to take it seriously, you know. Instead of back then, we. Like I said, we were lucky to have one T-shirt design. Yeah, uh, and and speaking of you know coronavirus and the way things are now, I know you guys aren't touring uh, or playing any uh, any big shows um, right now. But do you have any um, uh, anything to to say to people that ask about the next Monstrosity album or the next Terrorizer album? Well, the next Monstrosity album is almost done as far as the writing. I'm about ready to start working on the lyrics. But um, kind of how we're doing this one is I'm writing I'm writing the main songs, and then Mark and Matt are kind of going through and just like taking them to the next level, you know, beefing up the the riffs and 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 stepping them up. But just because I've been so proactive with writing this last year, I just made a point to just you know I had. I have a lot of time because I'm, you know, I'm, this is my job now, you know what I mean? And I'm just taking it seriously as far as that goes, you know, just trying to be, uh, you know, proactive as far as writing and, and staying, uh, staying on focus, you know, trying to, um, like I did a project with this guy Midnight from Crimson Glory before he died. And it was a case that he was just trying to finish his album and I ended up recording a whole discography for the guy, you know, I was like, let's write this album let's write the next album let's do a covers album you know and we ended up recording like 60 songs so I kind of took that mentality with the Terrorizer same thing you know I went in with Pete and we like we uh, we basically wrote 20 songs and then used the 14 that are on the album so we we have a 
we have some songs left over, you know. And it was just a case of, you know, just, you know, working like, you know, 10 times harder than the next, you know, than the next guy. To yeah. where, so with, with, the ten, with this new monstrosity, I wrote like four songs in 2018. I had those done. And I'd say this last year, I just went ahead and wrote like, I probably got seven or eight more songs. And we're going to make it a little bit shorter of an album just because the last one, I guess the fans told me that it was too long. Huh. You know? <laughs> well, like I said, because, you know, the, I, yeah. I mean, it was, to me, it was a case of CDs came along and, you know, albums, you know, could hold more, or CDs could hold more information. So yeah. bands were doing longer CDs and uh, doing longer albums. And, um, I guess, you know, I never really think of it as listening to it from in one take, you know, from start to finish, but um, I guess bands have started doing shorter albums, and so, like, the 12-song thing doesn't apply anymore, apparently, that's what I'm told. <laughs> shorter attention spans so, all around. Yeah. 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 Courtesy and, of our computers. You know, like you said, and like you said, it works works better for me, you know, we can have a shorter album. And, um, the kind of tentative plan at this point is to you know, I'm going to go and do drums for the new record, and then I'm also going to do drums for uh, Imperial Doom again. Hmm. To, to do like, so it's kind of going to be doing two albums in one with this next recording. So wait, so so you guys are uh, re-recording Imperial Doom? I want to redo it, yeah, because we were never happy with the album. We didn't, we didn't. That was one of the things about Imperial Doom. We just. Like, like that whole thing about the drums, you know, that we we had the discussion about earlier. Okay. You know, we just the drums, you know, we we were young kids back then, and, and you know, that just that we were blast beat happy, and we just <laughs> wanted to hear the blast beat as loud as possible, you know. And yeah. so the guitars are totally buried, and it just the mix is horrible. And like I said, we were kids back then, you know. It's like we could. The songs are great. We lo always love the songs, but we just never like the mix or the recording, you know. So, um, so basically, I want to do a new version of that while everybody's still alive, you know. Van have Van Earp come back play the bass. George, pretty much, he, you know, he told me he'd do the vocals for it. So, you know, that's kind of the tentative plan. Um, okay, that's it. That's know. very interesting. Wow. Yeah, it's just something we've always wanted to do. Um, I know a lot of people don't like re-records or whatever, and there's, you know, but it's this is about us kind of fulfilling the original idea, you know, and getting it out, you know, because I think well, it'll be like kind of like a, a night and day experience because people can actually hear the guitar riffs, you know, because there's some great riffs, you know, you just can't hear them. Huh. Well, something I wanted, I mean, I, I, I do, like I said, want to be respectful of your time. Before we close out, though, because you just brought that up, I had to ask you, um, the Angel's Venom, uh, the, the track on In Dark Purity, um, I, it's, it's kind of like just among myself and other death metal fans over the years, it's, it's like the closest thing you could have to like a, a hit. You know, in in death metal, like that, you know that that one very kind of slow, drawn out, hypnotic riff where you're using the, I guess, kind of like reverse, uh, reverse snare hits. You know what I'm talking about? Like the reverse echo right. snare. That, sure. that yeah. It's like a very it's famous backwards reverb. 
Yeah, I, now let me just ask you because that riff has hit home with so many death metal fans that I know personally over the years. Whenever I bring up Monstrosity, it usually comes up. When you were recording that particular song, writing that particular song, did you realize that you kind of had a um, like a hit or so to speak, or a really catchy song on your hands? Yes, in short, yeah. Wow. Um, it was our favorite. It was our favorite, and if you notice, it's actually like for the. The a majority of the song is that one riff just played in different ways. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's, uh, you know, there's different harmonies, you know, basically. One, you know, just like octave here, we're going to do a, do the fifth of it here, you know, and, and then we're going to speed it up. <laughs> you know, like, so it's kind of like just taking an idea. That was like, Again, on the third record, we kind of wanted to streamline things, and it was just more or less taking an idea and, and building upon it instead of just going rip, even though that it still is pretty crazy as far as going rip, 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 because there are some other riffs that are just kind of... I wish, actually, like some of the end riffs we'd taken out and like shortened it, actually, a bit, but whatever. Um, it's built on that main riff, and, and it's like everything comes from that riff, basically, in one way or another, you know? Yeah, and, uh, yeah, it's it was focusing more on songwriting, you know, and really like instead of just trying to be, you know, cram a million riffs into one song, it was kind of more or less taking one riff and expanding on it. It was kind of a different approach to death metal than what was going on at the time. Uh, definitely, and it obviously resonated, I think, for that re reason with a lot of people, myself included, as a fan. Uh, and on that, and that was that was Jay Fernandez. That was Jay Fernandez of Brutality. Myself and Jason Avery, us three, pretty much. Good. It was Jay's riff, and then between the three of us, we just like, okay, well, let's do a halftime here, you know. <laughs> and we just throwing ideas around, and like us three, pretty much, you know, just sitting in a garage, you know. There was no internet, there was no sending files. It was just, you know, three guys in a room hashing out ideas, you know, old school style. Yeah, wow, Brutality, another one of my favorite old-school Florida bands. Interesting to, to realize that there's um, that, that riff kind of comes from that same imagination uh, and skill set. Yeah. Um, uh, all right, so, so, Lee, we always close out our interviews by asking the guests to recommend one older release and one newer release by any artist you like. doesn't have to be metal, could be metal, uh, just to recommend something for the listeners. Um... Okay, I would say old school Bathory, The Return. Mm, all right, strong. It's, a clunk, it's kind of a clunky, not so technical album, but at the time it was just so extreme, you know, because there was nothing out really like going for that. I mean, there was there was Slayers and stuff, but I don't know, that Bathory just had that kind of old school haunting sound different um so that would be the whole, that was kind of the, one of the first that came to mind as far as like the old style um the new one's definitely a little harder um that could be the tough pick. one yeah uh, i've been listening to that new necrophobic okay um could been so i guess i would pick that one for as far as new album yeah, Necro. I'm I'm going out on a limb. Are, are they from Sweden? Yeah. Yeah, Necrophobe. Okay, good band. Um, 
Uh, all right, so Lee Harrison, we thank you very much for your time, man. We appreciate you um, uh, telling us your story and answering our questions and staying on the phone as long as you've been. I'm glad your phone uh, battery held out. Um, and yeah, did uh, pretty good. We got sixty percent to go. That's good. <laughs> right. see, yeah, back in the day, we were just pumping quarters uh, into the payphone, man. Um, right. Uh, so. Before we let you go, just any last words for um, fans of your music or listeners of our show? Well, you know, just uh, try to stay safe out there, and uh, hopefully one day we can get back and get this thing going again. You know, it's looking pretty grim these days, but uh, we're gonna we're gonna continue working and uh, writing and recording and doing that end of it for now. And uh, hopefully we can get back to touring because that's really where we want to go with it, you know. Yeah, yeah, we've heard that and sentiment a lot. Definitely, you know what you mean. Um, and and uh, thanks for thanks for checking us out, and uh, thanks for continued support. And make sure you check out all the albums because they're all winners. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> yes, sir. I, I agree. I can second that. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. And uh, just the passage of existence uh, on Metal Blade Records is the latest monstrosity album. Uh, and Caustic Attack on the end records is the latest Terrorizer album, uh, both of which feature Lee Harrison. Lee, thank you very much for your time, brother. We'll be in touch as this episode is produced and uploaded. Awesome. Thank you, guys. All right, Lee Harrison of Monstrosity and Terrorizer. We appreciate his time. Uh, very honored to have him on the program tonight. Mm-hmm. I know I was really excited about this one. Yeah, man. Uh, been on that Monstrosity binge for this week and enjoying the shit out of it, listening to the salty of the drums. And it's, you mentioned before him involved in the guitar playing and that writing. It just There's something about Monstrosity that just melts together so well. Yeah, it's it's a death metal fan's death metal. That's yep. all there is to it. Yep, it's always fun hearing uh, some of that first person real life, early '90s uh, Florida experience in death metal. Too. Yeah, love yeah, the, love the little stories and anecdotes. Yeah, shout out to Lee. Thank Thanks. you. Yeah, man. Uh, but listen, you guys, you might have been to Florida. Maybe you went to Disney World or something, Epcot Center. I don't know. I Florida uh, before. But yeah, you guys are not going to be able to give me those OG stories like Lee Harrison. Mm-mm. So instead, uh, maybe you can at least pitch something cool my way, some, some nice music. Yeah. You, you guys still listen to music? Or you just play video games all day and watch anime. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I was uh, if I was using bots to uh, hack the pre-orders of these of PlayStation Five, can you do uh, that? Like people are doing that right yeah. now. Uh, oh, this yeah. might have been one thing I would have uh, pre-ordered with a, a, bo- with a bot. Do you know where I'm going with this? Okay, yes. so um, I how, have. How much scotch did you have before? A couple fingers, yeah. at least two fingers. My two favorite yeah. fingers, <laughs> right, right. Uh, metal horns, yeah, for those, uh, which is very uh-huh. relevant for for this band. Uh, Memoriam from the UK, uh, their 2019 record Requiem for Mankind, because mm. uh, mankind needs coming back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really, uh, you know, uh, churning like just. I want to say, like, powerfully pushing forward 
uh, traditional giant death metal out of the UK uh, featuring um, ex-bolt thrower vocalist Carl Willits mm. uh, and ex-benediction bass player uh, Frankie Healy. Mm. Um, Stacked. This, okay. this to me is like what, what I think of European metal festivals I hear like this. You yeah. know, um, yeah. this is this is big crowd, big churning kind of uh, the, the the most uh, widely accepted extreme music I feel like that you can get. Um, really fun. I love the 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 the, the patience with the riffs um, and just you know this is, this is I don't want to say this in a bad way, but this is great desk music as well as great festival music. Okay. Um, so yes, deskable, music. deskable, music. deskable, yeah, this is des- deskable magazine music. Well, I, I can see what you're saying though, because it's not as a listener, it's not terribly demanding. It's very catchy. It's not overly technical. It's just kind of giving you that bare bones beef stew death metal that we love about. Uh, maybe you know, like you mentioned, Bolt Thrower, Benediction, some right. of the bands that these guys are known for. That is a way more eloquent eloquent way uh, to say exactly how I feel about this. I, I'm yeah. drinking these Budweiser's with the Clydesdales on them, uh, not scotch. Yeah, there you go. So, um, so yeah, a, f- a fun release, man. You know, you know, a little um, departure from from the the more chaotic. But this is this is uh, heavy and worth your attention. Creeping, creeping yeah. all Deskable memorial. Brain corruption. Oh boy. Mm. Refer to this band as ear corruption because it is so distorted and broken up sounding that after listening to it and then putting on your recommendation, it sounded like acoustic guitars. <laughs> this is like the crunchiest shit I have ever heard. It just sounds like uh, papers flying out of a fax machine at 350 BPM a minute. It's got that dead Kennedy spirit that grind is kind of based off of. Brain corruption out of uh, Lower Saxony, Germany. Band started in 2009. This is their latest release, uh, Profiteers of Suffering. Crunchy. It is so thick with with distortion um, that it's one of those mixes you need to get used to listening to. But uh, really love the energy behind it. So, yeah, this, this is what we got, Profiteers of Suffering. Really streamlining that HM2 sound into, uh, like you said, more of a, more of a hardcore punk-influenced grindcore yeah, like assault. Yeah, it sounds like an HM4 because they just, yeah they mm-hmm. got two of them together. I, <laughs> I don't want to do math. I'm I'm have I'm having a good time tonight. All right, let's just listen to the music. Uh, all right, listen. 
I hate to break it to you guys, but I have a life outside of talking about death metal on this podcast, okay? All right. Sometimes I talk about death metal on other social media platforms, like uh, the Necrosexual YouTube channel that uh, interviewed me recently. Uh, Shout out to Grim Jim, who's affiliated with the Necrosexual. Uh, He actually is the man playing this artful bass that you hear underneath my um, much less artful voice right now in the band Basilisk uh, from Pennsylvania, uh, spelled B-A-S-I-L-Y-S-K. You can get this on Bandcamp. And I have the album Emergence that came out last year, self-released. I'm a total poser. I did not get the jewel case that sold out. I got the new Digipack that they have available. Uh, But I love it. It's a great album. Uh, Truly amazing band I've had my eye on for a few years now. I think it was probably... I want to say 2016 or 17, maybe 18, uh, that Buckshot Facelift performed down in Pennsylvania at the Rusty Nail. Uh, Shout out to Ron Kaiser of Blasphemous, whose album I brought in last year uh, for booking that show. There was a lot of great bands, but um, Basilisk performed that night and really caught my attention. And I said, this band is doing something interesting. I actually thought to myself watching Basilisk that, that night, this is like the, a band that's going to be the future of death metal. Whatever they record, I want to get it. I hope they blow up, but not necessarily bands that are doing something really brilliant blow up all the time, unfortunately. But this is an underground classic as I knew it would become. Um, and I actually bought their first album from like 2012 on CD at a show randomly in a distro table. And it wasn't for me. They hadn't yet achieved what I witnessed a few years ago when I saw them live. This album, Emergence, that came out last year is what I was talking about, is what I envisioned, is what I saw them play live that night. Uh, this this hits everything for me. I guess if I'm going to try to describe it quickly as I would to uh, you know, somebody I, wanna, I want to listen to it, um, it hits a lot of those check marks and hallmarks of the early 90s, late 80s, thrash crossing over into death metal, classic era of death metal that we love so much, the ABC era of Morbid Angel, uh, some of the more obscure European albums that we love so much. Uh, I'm thinking about maybe bands like Bioaggression, uh, Afterlife. Not that those bands are European, uh, but um, also maybe bands like Demolic themselves, um, uh, Disharmonic Orchestra. Just some of the more interesting bands uh, with with interesting musicianship and interesting ideas that kind of went more obscure. Uh, and, and in Demolich's case, uh, you know, went obscure for several years anyway. Uh, Basilisk is a band that is destined, in my personal opinion, to either become like the next big um, trendsetter in death metal because they'll, 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 people will catch on that they're doing something really awesome and try to maybe be more like them, or they're going to be the next obscure legend uh, because this album, Emergence, is already just uh, a brilliant classic in the death metal genre. I think, and I brought it in tonight, I recently got this in the mail, but I wanted to bring this in on the Monstrosity episode because I feel like to, to really, like real Monstrosity fans and death metal people who like view Monstrosity as the special jewel of a band like I do, I feel like some of those people could appreciate this band Basilisk that's on the come up for some of the same reasons. The nuance, the songwriting, the attention to detail, and overall the performance captured on this album. Uh, I can't speak highly enough about this. Um, I, I'm just going to stop now and let it play out, and you guys can check it out yourself on their band camp. 
This is Basilisk, B-A-S-I-L-Y-S-K, from Pennsylvania with their album Emergence. Um, I just love this band, and I've been captivated since I saw them live at the Rusty Nail uh, a few years ago. So shout to Grim Jim and the rest of the crew uh, watching you guys uh, very, very closely. Okay, so uh, we recommended a couple of albums. We uh, talked to death metal legend Lee Harrison. No big deal, right? Come on. That was great. Shout to him. We appreciate his time. Uh, Shout to you, the listener who made it through the whole episode. Uh, We hope you check out the albums we talked about. We hope you revisit or check out uh, all the monstrosity material and the Terrorizer album. Um, And uh, if that's not enough for you, you, if your ears are still thirsty... Uh, you can check us out on Patreon. We, we give you bonus episodes. There's videos. There's cute little clips. You know, all sorts of stuff that goes on. You got to go to heavyholepodcast.com, and the links are all there. All of them at the top. Everything. What do you want to do? You want to leave me a voicemail? Yeah. And we'll play it on the show? Call them. Yeah. What do you want to go to Instagram and watch me on Instagram live at 8 p.m. on Sunday nights Eastern time? Like, like it. You're a pervert. No, I'm kidding. I'm, I do that. You can, you can. Cover your eyes. Yeah. I wear clothes. You can watch me. It's not OnlyFans. I just talk about death metal. I promise. Instagram. I promise. You got to search for the OnlyFans. <laughs> yeah. We don't just give that URL. Uh-huh. Yeah. We don't just give that out. Listen, before it gets filthy in here. Heavyholepodcast.com if you want to check us out on all the social medias we got. Mm-hmm, if you mm-hmm. want to check us out on Patreon and give us money for extra content, we make it worth your while, tough guy. Yeah. Um, if you want to leave the voicemail, the phone number's right there. Uh-huh. Uh, check it. That's it. Is there, is there, uh, did, did I leave anything out? Yeah, one. 